You're listening to Sibling Talk, commentary from a progressive point of view. Now here are your hosts, John Paulette and Mary Jo Tumer. Hello, I'm John Paulette. And I'm Mary Jo Tumer. Well, Mary, it may be that we have our John Dean, a John Dean for a new era for the January 6th commission, because it sounds like Mark Meadows, who was the chief of staff, uh, is cooperating. What do you think about that, huh? Well, I was kind of excited to hear that yesterday, assume, assuming that he's gonna, gonna be serious about it and not be cute. But maybe for our listeners, you should describe who John Dean is. Ah, uh, yes, John Dean, was the counsel to the president. That was his job. And he was a fairly young guy. For Nixon. I'm sorry, I should be specific. For Nixon. And uh, he was a pretty young guy at the time. Uh, I don't know. What do you think? His 30s, maybe? Yeah, Yeah, I I think, sure. Because that's how many years ago, and he's still out there talking. Absolutely. That was 50 years ago. So, uh, you know, but he was kind of one of these uh, bright young men who uh, was attracted to power. And he was not on the inside ring of the Nixon administration, because that was Haldeman and Ehrlichman and John Mitchell, uh, to some extent, Chuck Colson. You know, they were the ones that Nixon really turned to. But when... uh, when problems came up and Nixon essentially needed his own lawyer as a president, John Dean was the guy. And he was asked uh, to like write reports that showed that the Nixon White House was innocent. And then most famously in March, uh, so that would have been March maybe of 73 or 74. I'm gonna get that year mixed up. Uh, He was brought in to the Oval Office, and he famously said, you know, Mr. President, you have a cancer on your presidency. Uh, He also noticed at that time that occasionally it seemed like Nixon would kind of lean into the desk and say something, because Dean did not know their conversations were being recorded. So I've given you a long, long background there. But when he was called by, now I'm going to mix up whether it was the Senate, the Sam Irvin Committee, or the House Committee. Uh, Wasn't that a joint committee? Like, was there a select committee? That's that's an interesting historical point. Yeah, I'll have to look that up. But I think it may have been a select committee. And uh, he knew by this point that he had been part of a conspiracy and to tell the whole story. There are several things that can be said to have unraveled Watergate, but you got to put John Dean right up at at the top. And he testified for like five days, didn't he? Oh, yeah. It went on and on and on. And I don't know why this memory sticks with me so much. His wife, whose name was Maureen, and uh, she was a very beautiful woman. She had, wasn't just blonde. It was like almost white hair pulled very tightly in a bun 
and she sat stoically behind him through the entire uh, entire testimony. That, by the way, is what you call a fact that has nothing to do with the story we're telling. No, but John, one of the reasons I think that's remembered by people, and I remember that as well, is because the paper, which for us at the time could have been the Cleveland Press or the Cleveland Plain Dealer, like had five consecutive pictures of her sitting behind him and she was like a little bit of a fashionista and you know what I mean so it was kind of there was a lot of drama around the whole Watergate hearings the public piece of the hearings right and we didn't have 24-hour news then so these pictures just seared in our mind but I do remember him testifying because our mom loved that kind of political drama. She just oh, loved man. it. Televised testimony for Marge. You get, in her yeah. mind, you get a nice container of cottage cheese, maybe some potato chips and a Coke, and you sit down on the couch. Right. right? You do all the laundry, and you bring it up, and you fold it while you're watching. Right. I yeah. mean, that was, to her, that was heaven. And when she grew some children who were also addicted to that, because I was like, a sophomore in high school or something or the summer because a lot of it took place in the summer i just remember sitting there with her just riveted to the television because it was very dramatic and dramatic stuff would happen like when the butterfield guy who was who who testified about the tape the taping system it was like wow oh, 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 you, <laughs> you know the key turning point and this could happen on meadows um as well or something like this was when Dean went through in extraordinary detail, John Dean had a great memory for things. And he said all this, the White House and Nixon's reaction was that none of that's true. Dean was the guy who was responsible. They wanted to pin everything on him and he's making all this this up. And that kind of hung out there and a lot of the country believed it until the tapes got played, and it turned out John Dean had it exactly right. And that had a big role, I think, in blowing up the whole Nixon defense. Right. And so before we go on, now we're not going to have any time to talk about today, but about, I don't know how many years ago, not even 10 years ago, I went to a continuing legal ad in ethics. Lawyers have to uh, take so many hours of ethics every year to keep their license. And I went to one that he was putting on. So that's how he was making money for a while, was doing the circuit of continuing legal ed. And, you know, basically that's what he was talking about, like legal ob- obligations as a lawyer to tell the truth and um, not to get sucked into these illegal and unethical things. And he was so compelling, John. Because it's such an interesting story, not just a historical story, but it's such a cautionary tale for lawyers to not get caught in these moments of power. And, and you know, so here we are today, <laughs> all these years later, 50 years later, and you have people doing exactly the same thing, which is being sucked into power and giving away their lives and careers to that end, to that God, as it were. Well, and I mean, the question really at the beginning of all, all this 
is why has Mark Meadows, unlike Roger Stone, Steve Bannon, uh, you know, go, go through the list, I'm sure eventually Rudy uh, as well, why has he decided to cooperate? And you know, there are a lot of possibilities. Uh, if you had to pick your theory, what would it be? Meadows, because he needs to work again. You know what I mean? That's one thing. And the second thing is he may, and he has a good lawyer that to Williger, you know, yeah. at least he has a good reputation. He's not a schlock like some of these lawyers may be saying to him, you're in trouble. And this may be your opportunity to save yourself from sitting in jail. Well, one, he would have gone to jail like, like Bannon is going to on the contempt, but you know, if there's a criminal probe by the Justice Department on the sedition, you know, Meadows is up to his ass in alligators. And third, and I hope this is true, is that he's understood that he has a role to play in saving the democracy. I'd love to think that he had a moment where he said, wow, this isn't good what happened. And we need to correct the record or, you know, we need to set it straight so that we don't have all these anti-democrats out there i don't know not democrats like the party but democracy types i don't know what do you think i you know i think all of your ideas are true and you know like any any human situation everything's a mix of, of things this is hard for me to comprehend but i think mark meadows and a lot of other people actually believed in Donald Trump and what they, what he was doing. You know, I don't see that. Uh, I don't see how, how that could happen, but it's clearly there. So let's assume for a minute that Mark Meadows inside is actually an ethical guy who cared about service. He was the head of the Freedom Caucus. I don't agree with him, but let me give him that for a minute. And then you get further and further sucked in to all of this. You know, we read in Woodward and Costa's book, uh, Peril, that at one of the real crazy meetings when uh, Sidney Powell and uh, Rudy Giuliani like stopped by the White House to talk to Trump, and it's one where just you know crazy ideas are going going on, that Meadows is not in that meeting, but he's just down the hall. He's in his office. Now, the chief of staff, I think, knows that there's a meeting going on in the in the White House, or he should, should know. And the fact that that was that crucial of a meeting with those crazy players, and he sat it out, says to me, at some point, he was starting to feel Man, I don't know what to do, but I got to stay away from that that crap. And I wonder if that's part of the evolution that leads to, as you mentioned, him sitting down <laughs> with his lawyer, and the lawyer says, "You know what? It's time, man. You got to get clean on this." Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think that's true. I ha I hate the thought that he's going to go in there and just stonewall. Yeah. Um. And he is probably best situated to um, at least defend the principle of executive privilege, meaning that, 
the president has to be able to speak freely to his chief of staff. And I think even Biden would agree with that. I mean, the thing that's happening in the courts right now is, or yesterday, when um, Trump's lawyers were in there arguing against the archives giving this information up, and the judge seemed, the judges seemed very skeptical of the argument, and they were saying, like, yeah, but who, whose privilege is it to protect the president? And Trump isn't the president anymore. So that argument seems to be holding sway over the documents that exist in the archive. But Meadows himself, it seems to me, has an argument to make to say, the conversations that the president and I had, those remain privileged because otherwise a president is never going to feel free to speak to his chief of staff in the way that needs to be discussed. The counter argument to that is that planning a coup is not, <laughs> not within, um, you know, your government function, your governmental function. But <clears throat> I think Meadows has a better argument to make than probably anybody except maybe Cipollone, who was White House counsel. On the other hand, if I'm Meadows, I'm thinking to myself, Trump is not going to um, protect me. There's no way because Trump doesn't do that. So if I'm hanging out there, I better start figuring out how to protect myself. And, and Meadows must have some interesting, interesting stuff. Well, and I, I mean, I think that's a good opinion. I, I really do. And unfortunately, that is not nearly as noble as uh, I was suggesting might be true about Mark Meadows. It could just be that you say, his lawyer tells him, and he thinks to himself, you are going to look crappy in prison. And, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I asked this question, you know, and then we're really out over time, but I asked this question, well, is Meadows a lawyer? And while we were talking, <laughs> I looked it up, and he actually had always claimed to have a bachelor's degree from University of Southern Florida, but turns out he didn't. He had an associate degree. So not only is he not a lawyer, he um, lied about his credentials. So okay. here we go. This is the guy and the guy we're talking about. Okay. Do do I get to go back in the tape and erase everything I said about <laughs> him maybe having some noble character? I think oh, you do. Man. All that, right. Okay, that was a mistake. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye. Sibling Talk is a JMP production. Theme song by David Paulette.